Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players, proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. So on this episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to introduce Mark Kalyal. He is the number one Dutch men's singles player with a current world ranking of 28 in the world and a career higher ranking of 23. He's reached the quarterfinals in the 2021 World Championships, round of 16 in the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games, and was a semi-finalist of the 2021 All England Championships. But I think I truly believe sometimes you have to make decisions for your badminton career as well, and that is not to give training four times a week and uh, to uh, play as much as league match because then we have money. Yeah, you have to invest also in your own career. So if that costs you money, that's how it is. At one point, hopefully, you will get it back also from the badminton. But yeah, what I said, it is a little bit more easy nowadays, but I also start from zero in that way. And for sure, I got a good background and stuff like that. But I truly believe sometimes you have to invest, even if that costs you money. If I go to Dubai, for instance, and it costs me money, but I can train with Victor, yeah, that's how it is. I have to do, I have to invest. And if I then cannot go out for dinner two times a week or one time a week, then I have to do that because my badminton career is priority number one. We're coming live with Mark in person, which is really nice because we are currently in the Netherlands training in preparation for the Commonwealth Games. But Mark, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Nice to be here. Awesome. And just so that everyone knows, we have Stuart Brio here. He is my co-host today. He is the Australian national head coach and my boss um, <laughs> when it comes to badminton Australia. So thanks, Stu, for coming on. Coast. Thanks for the invitation, Jeff. Looking forward to the chat. You've listened to a few podcasts. I've listened now. to a few podcasts. I've been on one. It took a while. But, yeah, really looking forward to having a chat about maybe some men's singles, which is what I used to play a long, long time ago. So I'm looking forward to chatting with Mark and picking his brain. Awesome. So, Mark, just a, a quick-fire question just to get us going. What is your favourite food before playing a big match? Before playing a big match, I think then I will go for the Italian Kitchen, I think I'd like a pasta or something in that way. Yeah. 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 We talked to Peter Gator and he said that it was, if he won, won the first round on pasta, then every single day will be pasta. <laughs> There's no change from that. Do, do you have any superstition? I know when I used to play, I, I was the same. If I wore a pair of shorts that I or felt the, like I played well in. Or jocks. Or <laughs> jocks. Underwear. Yeah. Underwear that I felt like I played well in. I would always make sure I got them laundered, 
ready for the next day because yeah. that was somehow lucky? Do you yeah. have anything? No, actually not. I sometimes think about it, but actually I do all the time something different. And sometimes even when I'm staying with my colleagues or my friends or Lena or in that way, they also said like, there's no rhythm in your <laughs> lifestyle. So that's actually really weird, but that's me. I just enjoy the moment and see what is good for me at the day. Awesome. Well, let's start from the start then, Mark. How did you first start playing badminton? My mom was on badminton actually, and then my brothers, and then actually automatic. I'm the youngest, uh, two older brothers that go to the hall, and there's actually no option to play another sport. Actually, I play some football also. That's actually really popular here in the Netherlands, but at one point you have to make the choose to between uh, badminton and football, and it was actually an easy decision for me. And then, uh, yeah, I just played badminton from around when I was eight years old, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And then how long did it take for you to beat your older brothers? Actually, I never beat them then, and they were always bullying me with that. The last match I know that we played, the score was uh, till 15, and he smoked my ass actually <laughs> 15-0 in the last game. So there was always a fight in the family, and then after that they stopped. So they stopped on the highla- highlights from their career. But uh, now in general, uh, they stopped, I think, when I was coming up, when I was 12, 13, they, they stopped badminton, they played other sports and go to school. And then I was the only one actually in the family, but my brother also trained me as a personal trainer really long because he's a fitness coach. So mm-hmm. actually till I was 18 or 19, I still work with my brother, with my physical, physical coach. And then I move at one point here in Arnhem because we ha- I have to, because I want to be part of the team. Yeah, yeah National Center. Okay. Yeah. So eight years old and you just started badminton following your brothers on the court. When did it become something a bit more serious that you decided that, hey, I want to do good things or big things in badminton? I think I was starting with my old club and then at one point they said like, Mark, we see some talent in you and I think you have to move to one of the biggest clubs in The Hague. Actually, if I think looking back now, it is really nice that they said that to me because I have then chance to go to a bigger club and have better people who have more knowledge about better badminton. So, and then I move around when I was 12 to the club where I'm still playing sometimes and uh, the club what I love in the Netherlands, as they could say. And yeah, at that moment I feel, okay, maybe there's something more. And then I was under 13 and I was actually already selected for the national team because we have under 13, under 15, under 17, under 19 and going up. So in that time, yeah, when I was in the national team, I I was selected for the most tournaments. And when I was under 13, I could already join tournaments when I was under 15, eight nations or things like that. So then I was thinking, okay, it's become serious but you never know actually at the youth so I was just enjoying Mm. yeah yeah and then what about school did you continue all your high school and everything while training yeah yeah we in the Netherlands is actually you have to finish your lower school for sure and then also your high school that is yeah the most people are doing that and then for sure you can go to the university or other things like that I just finished my uh, high school and then uh, I started another study but just actually on quite low but I still have something, but then I was actually full-time focusing on, uh, on my sport. Yeah. I think with a lot of the Europeans that we talk to on the podcast, quite a few of them have a bit of a break. So, you know, maybe the 16, 17-year-old age where you, you get interested in girls and parties and yeah. all of that stuff. Did you ever have a break between your badminton career and come back or was it all the way through? I don't think I have a break in that way. I always continue badminton, but at one point, I think I was around 21 or something like that. I start to like more the parties and stuff like that. And I did that for a period. 
But actually, at that point, I made some really good results as well. So I was starting believing that maybe that was helping or the key. Uh, but I found out quite uh, fast that it was totally, it's nothing to do with it. But then I had one period, I also think like, yeah, then I didn't want to say I go every week, but it was maybe three times in a month or something like that. I was standing in a club or something like that, drinking alcohol and stuff like that. And then, yeah, I just felt after one year, okay, that is not the key if I want to make the best. So I never have a break, but at that period, there was a thing like where I was thinking, okay, I really like the other life. But I think my hardest moment of my career was especially when I was coming from the juniors. I was actually okay in Europe, become number two at the European Junior Championship. And then I started to go to the seniors. I think everybody had a hard time there. And then I reached directly in final in the series. And then I was thinking, oh, it's not that difficult. And then the clap was coming every single round, qualification, losing, losing. And then I was thinking, okay, do I really want this? Traveling whole Europe and make no results, no money, nothing. And that was a really hard time, actually, I want to say. And then after that, I talk along with my coach and I really want to continue. And that was actually the best decision of my life till now. Yeah. 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 Who was your coach at that time when it was difficult? Rune Massing. Rune Massing. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. also a player. Yeah, he was a player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I still have a really special bond with him. And sometimes I'm still talking with him. And yeah, he helped me a lot in that mm. uh, period. Yeah. What, what did he say to you? Because I guess from our perspective from Australia, there's a lot of, of the juniors that will fall off at 19 years mm. old because it gets too hard. And like you said, you go to qualification, you lose first round, you don't even make the main draw. And no, it's, it's really hard, especially during Olympic qualifying years. Is there something that he told you to motivate you or inspire you to keep going? Um, I don't think he said any specific words where I was thinking, okay, now I get it or now yeah. I want it. But I have really good open talks and talk about how I'm feeling, what it do to me when I'm traveling to a little bit poor country in Europe or being there's no spectators, nothing. And I don't want it. I want the highest thing. I want to play for a crowd and something like that. And we talk a lot about it, actually. And I, I think the good thing is that we have an open communication in that. And I was talking about my feelings about in that time, like, OK, yeah, I don't want to do this and I want to be better. And then we train actually way harder after that and saying, OK, we are not giving up and I'm also not a person like that at all. Also not in my matches. So then we start to think like, okay, then we're going to train as hard as we can to go into the biggest tournaments. And yeah, that was actually the key point. Yeah. I think it's something we see quite a lot of where when you're a junior, there's sort of two pathways. There's the successful junior who, who does well at the junior events, who is naturally, you know, gets really good results. And then that transition into seniors is sometimes, especially if you might have some really quick success in the seniors, but then it becomes a really tough grind and it's it's something you haven't had to experience much of. And then there's the other path, which is the person who's just struggled all the way through and fight, 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 fight. And maybe they're even better equipped to move on to the world stage because they've had to work so hard for everything compared to the athletes that are a little more talented or, or have those early junior yeah. results so it's quite interesting to hear that story because I think you were in the first category around the very talented junior played very well had great results maybe got some early success but then the tour grind yeah. really kicked in and made it it's a hard slog for a long period of time to really find yeah. Yeah. your why or why are you going to keep doing this yeah exactly and I also think I think I will a lot of people always said to me 
I don't have that much talent because in general, my technical skills are not that smooth. I'm not moving around like really smooth on court and stuff like that. And it was also when I was a junior, I was always hardworking, a hard hitter and that, but in some way it also, um, that makes me who I am now, just extremely hard, even work harder when people stop, I would try to work even harder. And in that way, I also think I don't want to give up. And I also want to see myself in the mirror and say, okay, there are some things that I can do better, especially also now these days, but I want to see in my mirror every training, what I was there, I give it all. And yeah, that is, I think my biggest motivation. And especially I think also when you're a junior, I really underestimated i think the family and my family is also a really big part in it they always support me and also when i was down and they never pushed me that i have to continue but there was always a backup so if i'm going back to my family it was always nice and they were there for me so i think that is also when you see sometimes other juniors and you have no yeah no good back with your family or your friends yeah then it's come become a way harder to continue the life and then you start to enjoy the other life and yeah that was not in my case, actually, no. Mm. So with the difficulty in transitioning from the junior to the senior, and then when you started to make a more of a name for yourself and win more in Europe, did you find any difficulty when you went and played in Asia then? Was that was it a little bit difficult for you there in the transition to Asia, or was, it, was there enough Asian players coming in European tournaments you got a lot of exposure? I think it's become now more that a lot of Asia players go to Europe now these days. But for me, the most nice was that I won a challenge. And at that moment, I felt like, okay, I can do it. And I think that is the success is, it's not always based on success or a career, but I think if you have that success one time, then you know how it feels and then you want to keep it up. And in that, I didn't feel any pressure to play Asia. Actually, I just want to show that I can do it. And for sure, the Asian style is totally different, but I think we found actually sometimes a good tactic wise to them. and. I train a lot also when I was junior, I also, we went to Indonesia training camp. We know how they train and it's yeah. extremely hard, but it's not always, in my opinion, there's not always the right way yeah. to train. And then sometimes I think you can catch them on sometimes the mentality or sometimes your tactic. And I think that is also maybe my most strength things to do. Try to kill a person on court and literally let him run till he's dying almost. And that sometimes helped to an Asia player, but definitely not all of them. Sometimes it's the other way around these days to me, but especially in the beginning, it helps me a lot in that. Yeah. 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 And I think, again, you touched on it. Your playing style is one that's, it's quite hardworking. You're a hard worker. Is that something that you had to learn? Like I talked to some of our players about, you have to learn to enjoy the hard work. Mm. If you don't, and you're always trying to find, oh, I'll just do half, or I won't do quite as much. I'm a little bit tired. You have to it's something you have to learn to enjoy really pushing your body as hard as you need to, to get to the right level. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you can learn it. I also, sometimes I also talk with uh, Ruben, my uh, housemate and friend, and he's totally not like that. He got a really good skills and stuff like that. But sometimes I said to him, like, actually, I really like to go going all in in training. And I like to see when people are in my colleague or my training partner is dying and me are dying. Yeah. I love to see that. And I love the hard work. And when we, when we are junior, we have a group of five or six persons and we push each other so much and maybe too much sometimes, but in a way, like if he's doing 10, then I would do 20, he mm. is doing 30. And so we keep each other pushing, pushing. And I think that learn, I learned so much from that, that I 
I love to train. Actually, I prefer training than uh, tournaments. And then that is, I think, a totally different mentality than maybe the most of it. But I just enjoy the practice. And yeah, and I enjoy today, for instance, we got a multi-end, but I love it too. I'm almost there, but I want to keep going in that way. So I don't know if you can learn it. And I think that is also what people sometimes say in the background, that is your talent. It's not the smooth kills, but you can go and dying on court and you can walk through walls. And that is a little bit what you also, yeah, in my eyes, if you want to become the best, all the players are doing that. It's not only that I can do it, but all the top players are doing that. And yeah, you have to do it in my eyes. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, because every player is different, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah. And and, yeah. and what motivates one player will demotivate yeah, yeah, another definitely. player. And, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking of the players we've got with us right now, Jeff, and I know that there's some that just can't or don't want, don't like the hard work. Of course, they'll do it if they need to, but they don't like it. And there's others that will just want more and more and more. And then the discussion is much more around, hey, that's actually too much or yeah, exactly. you need to pull back a little bit. We've got a tournament coming up. So... Again, as a coach, it's interesting to to have to try and work through with each player what the motivation is and then sometimes try and pull that back to make yeah, the training program. Yeah, for sure, program. you have to find the balance. And that is also, I think, sometimes it is also not not all the time best because I know that is still where I sometimes have the problems if I have to train differently, but it is really good. But I know that it's not hard work or I'm not winning. I'm also, I always want to win. And sometimes I'm only thinking about that. And that is also, you have to find the right balance when you're going to do it or not. But I always felt also when I was junior, if I'm not sweating or I'm not, then I'm not training good. And for sure, that is also a thing where you have to keep your mind really good and people have to talk. But I think I'm really happy with all my coaches still now, also with Jonas. He was a Danish coach. Mm. He helped me also to learn what is really good training. It's not always based on how many calories you're burning or something like that, but the intensity has to be extremely high or in that way we are training like this and the goal for every training. And I think, especially when I grow up now, I know that you don't have to work all the time hard, but I still like it and I still want to do, I always sometimes make jokes to the other, but I want to do something or in the weekend or something where I know maybe by concurrence or stopping now i want to do a little bit more that i feel okay i do some more than the other ones yep. so yeah but i think also again you have to understand yourself right so if if an athlete needs to do that little bit extra just because they then they feel better they walk on court a little bit better mm. when they play their first match in a tournament they feel like they've done everything they need to do yeah, exactly. they're in a good mindset it's it's that balance but i think each that's where, again where each player is is very individual but mm. It makes sense that if your mindset is, I want to do a little bit extra, then then do just that little bit extra to make exactly. sure that when you walk on court, I'm good to go, I'm 100% ready. I think it would be more difficult for you if you walk on court thinking, I'm not sure if I've done enough no, work, exactly. that's a bad spot to be in, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I think I was very similar to you, Mark, in that before physical sessions, I would be excited as to how tired I would be at the end of the session. Yeah, I exactly. love that feeling. Yeah. It's like... I'm going to, I'd walk into the hall and then I'd be thinking, when I walk out of here, I'm going to barely be able to walk. And I I was, I really enjoyed that. But you brought up a really interesting point about enjoying training more than than playing. When I used to play, I used to enjoy training more than playing tournaments as well. And I felt that I performed a lot better at training than I did at tournaments. Did you ever feel that yourself? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think sometimes also my coach now, he's quite new for me. In a way, we only work together a year something like that and he also said like i'm actually quite surprised how good technical skills you have on court training wise but 
if you look at my matches, it is most of the times I only can score from the back line. Hard hitting or a stick smash in that way. And now in training, sometimes I score at the net way more. So in that way, I also feel that I be way better in training. And that's why I also work now with a mental coach to try to catch that up. Where is the difference? And for sure, it is all the skills. I think I train also a couple of times now with Victor Ox. And if you see him in training, he's even way better and then you think like okay wow uh, that is really impressive but it is he got so much more skills but people are playing sometimes an automatic pilot in training so the shots in the forehand most of the times or for me it's a hard smash or the cross one and yeah i forgot sometimes that i also have some other uh, tools in it and yeah i think the good ones can do it most of the times they have 10 options in every each corner and that sometimes i forget and then i only have a two in a match, but actually I have maybe seven in my pocket. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. if you don't mind me asking, what are you doing with your sport psychology to help you bring all of your ability in training to the actual competition? Is it based around the result process? Is it based, is it based around something to help you feel like you're more at training in the competition? Now, actually, we start now to talk about it more. So okay. I'm just now starting actually the, the project, but in some ways also to help my coach reminder of things because also in the coaching wise, I think you have to do it all, all the time together. And I really feel always that I want to really have a good connection with my coach as well. So that then it's, for me, it's always nice if I'm sending, if I have a good coach sending two against one. So in that project, I think the coach is also really important for me to help me reminder, Hey, Mark, we can also do this and this and think about training wise, especially also when I was coaching with Rune, he was really like, he was also a poker player. So he was really from sometimes to, to gamble things or saying not totally gamble, but look at him and uh, see what we train. Can you remember the training in there? And I really like that too. Okay. Yes, that's true. And then we come in to the match. So for me, it's also a mentally thing really for the first time in my career, I think a mental training is really, really important. I always think like, okay, that's okay. If I physical really good tactics, then it's fine. But I think mentally, a lot of people underestimate it a lot. Mm. And I think everybody can improve a lot. So that's why actually we also now really have a more uh, intense project with uh, a mental coach now, till Paris actually, yeah. Now, just a quick word from our sponsors. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Volant was first born out of our frustration with the confusing, bright, and unsightly clothes and equipment that we saw in the badminton world. But now, it's so much more than that. Our mission is to accelerate the growth of badminton by providing players with products that enhance their love for the sport. All in all, it's high-quality gear that makes you look and feel great on and off the court. So make sure you check us out at volantbadminton.com and follow us on our socials at volantbadminton. That might answer the question I was going to ask, which is probably more around maybe the last two years has been what I would call a bit of a breakthrough mm. period for you. You've had some really strong results over the last two. I know we're talking a few minutes ago around <laughs> the Olympics and maybe a slight missed opportunity, <laughs> yeah. but... But, you know, the results over the last two years have been really strong. So is unlocking what's next, do you think it is that mental piece or is there, where would you like to see your game go over the next couple of years to, to achieve what you want to achieve? 
yeah, sometimes I also, sometimes when I'm thinking back, then I sometimes also think like, okay, maybe I'm on my highest point now already, but that is actually what I always warn myself. No, I'm still hungry and I'm still hungry to get more. And I think especially on my, I think my mentality is a really strong point, but it's also in some way a little bit weak point because I always think about winning. So that's why sometimes I forget in matches to play, to learn also. And I'm only thinking about the result. So I think sometimes I, that is also a key point to learn, play in matches, learn from what we train, what we are doing. And I think especially also in that scale wise, for instance, my net and all those things where I'm trying to work my ass off almost every day to get the net more, more initiative from the net. That is, I think if I can step up that game plus my mentality in that way, I think I can make a little bit my more step. I, I know that I never become the world number one. I'm also realistic in that, but yeah, I want to be, my goal is to be in the top 16 one time and uh, not one time, it's just for always in top 16 in that period. And I know that's a huge step because every step now is, it's yeah. a huge step, but that is especially my goal. And I think I have to step up in the games, what I said now with the net and mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think sometimes that what we call it the process, Jeff, when you and yeah, I talk yeah. a little mm. bit and it's hard to sometimes, so there's two ways again to look at it. There's the, um, I'm starting to win, so it must be working. Yeah. Or there's the, I'm actually following the right process. So I'm improving in all the areas that I'm trying to improve in. And that's why I think in training, it's important to have those. You can check that, you can have that assessment and then it's transferring it into the actual tournament play, right? But sometimes athletes, will judge whether they're on the right track by the result exactly. of the tournament. Exactly. And sometimes exactly. that's a very dangerous exactly. position or, or yeah. track to go down because yeah. sometimes you can just get lucky or sometimes you can you can be playing really well but actually not bringing anything if the training exactly. into the matches. So it'll be an interesting journey over yeah. the next yeah, exactly. little while. Yeah. yeah, and believing in the process is extremely important and I think every player is really stuppering in general, uh, every yep. athlete. And yeah, that's exactly what you're saying. If you're winning and then, yeah, the coach can say whatever you want. But I think like, I won. So a little bit like you can say what you want, but I won the match. But yeah, that is, I think, the key. And also when you get older, you learn to like, OK, you have to work on the process. And it is not only based on one match. It is yeah, especially when you see when I the guys where I playing. Yeah, everybody can win against each other, especially from the top mm -hmm. players. So yeah, it's just based on the day sometimes. And that's how it is. And I think, yeah, exactly what you're saying. You always have to keep in your mind the process. What are you doing? And that is the most important, yeah. And Mark, with all of the places you've trained in the world, which is a lot of different places around the world, and you're saying that the Asian style, yeah, very hard, but maybe some of it might not be as focused as what you think it could be. Mm -hmm. Which elements of, say, the Asian training style do you find really useful compared to the European? Like, have you... Do you stick more to the European or do you have kind of like a combination that you feel works for you because you've had so much exposure to uh, the other ones? To be really honest, I really like the European mentality training-wise. We also trained in Malaysia for the week between two tournaments in Indonesia and Malaysia. And we trained in the National Centre and I really enjoy it and I love it because there is the unbreakable mentality. So just work hard and there's no stop. So in some way, I really like it, but I know that I don't think I become a way better player in a way like to win my matches and the way I am because I am not used to train two and a half hours, three hours straight. That's also not for my body because yeah, I also train in Denmark a lot from Denmark. I think the intensity is so high. 
So one hour training, if you have so good intensity, is I think a way better than three hours, a little bit loose minded in that way. It is also, I don't want to say that some things are better, wrong or good, but in that period also when I'm training, it is you train, you play a rally, you don't think about it that much. You just keep going with the flow. And I think in our trainings also, and also where I trained in Denmark, it is so high intensity. Everybody has to be focused. Also the feeder rise, that is you're training together. It's not only you, also the feeding is extremely important and you cannot be loose minded. And I think at one point in three hour training, I'm getting really like, it's okay for me. So I think for me personally, I think the training where the intensity is extremely high and that is the most important for me at the moment, I think, especially, but I can also see, especially for sure, it depends a little bit on the period, but yeah, the unbreakable training is a little bit that can be also good for a lot of players. And I think especially in some periods, it is really good because I think also, I also talk with my coach now, sometimes if I work 50 minutes, I can be also in the last pass a little bit down. And in those training, you have to try to keep it up. So in that way, it is always good. But I think, yeah, I'm actually more scary if the Asian is going to train like us and uh, in Europe, then I'm thinking, okay, then we're going to be, then it will be the gap will be really, really big in my eyes. Yeah. Especially for the little bit lower countries in Europe or the, not the best ones. Yeah. Maybe you're in a good position to talk about this, but where do you see men's singles going over the next couple of years? You know, obviously right now, Victor's almost unbeatable. Mm. Where do you see the game going over the next couple of years? Yeah, yeah, it's a tough question because I think I cannot see it, especially in the men's single, I think physical wise, it is improved so and so much. I cannot see any physical guy in the top 32 where you think, okay, I can run him down because it is so physical. So I think when I, we also talk actually with the Indonesian coach and they say also like uh, Ginting or Christy almost pewing two times a week in trainings because it is, we're gonna train extremely hard. So I think physical wise it get even harder and harder. But also what you said now about Victor, I think that is, some people are saying his attacking game is so, so good. And I totally agree with that. But also if you see his ground pace with rally and defense, that is, Maybe that's even better than everybody's thinking. And yeah, I think in general, in every aspect, you have to become extremely good. And I think, yeah, especially sometimes if I see sometimes the Asian people, they are just mentally sometimes away. And I think that's a little bit of shame in some way, because for instance, I love to see Ginting playing, but sometimes he looks like totally off yeah. sometimes. And that is if he become like sometimes where he's playing world-class badminton, then I think, wow, okay, that is, yeah, that is how, how you want to see things actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting because maybe five, 10, 15 years ago, we always, when we talk about a player, we're like, oh, he's a defensive player, he's mm. attacking player, he's a more rally player. I think that's almost disappeared yeah, now. Yeah, at the, at the very top level, they're all so good at, at, yeah. at everything, right? It's, and I think that's an interesting one for Momota right? because someone who, you know, and Jeff gets excited when I mention mm -hmm. that name because he's one of his favourite players, but, you know, he's got a, a big change to make, I think, yeah. if he wants to be able to keep up with the very best players in the world now. Yeah, he has absolutely. to change a little bit. You know, you're talking about maybe for you changing the control and the skill and mm. around the net and, and the midcourt and, you know, he's got to make different changes to be able to keep up with, with the next evolution of... Yeah. And of, I also think, like... 
what you also guys probably see at our training now more, we have now something on the ankle and mm. on the heart rate. It become also more, sometimes you also see it now in football and in baseball, it is more computer system, what is good, whereas we also have uh, the clutch app. I think yep. uh, we're working sometimes now with it and you can see that people are doing a lot of times the same things. And if you all know that knowledge now, it is also going to improve a lot of things because then if you know that somebody is out of the fourth corner, nine out of 10 putting a cross shot here, yeah, why are you not standing there already? And I think that if that is going to develop in a couple of years, it is going to be it change a lot of things in all the systems, also in the men's uh, women's singles and the doubles. But I think that is also become really interested who is maybe coming really fast to see that those things in uh, the technology, actually. Yeah, I think that's the scary part with Asia. When I think it. if Asia really <laughs> yeah. get that knowledge, bring yeah. in that knowledge and, and open maybe a little bit, you know, because a lot of the Asian coaches have been very successful, but they're also quite old. They've, yeah, yeah. they've done the same thing Definitely. for the last 10, 20, 30 years and it's worked. No, yeah. no, no problems about that. They've no, produced no. some amazing players. But I think that new group of coaches, if they come through with this more scientific technical sports science yeah. background, yeah. it can be very scary if yeah. they start to train. Yeah, I with, think if you see Victor yeah. in everything, also his food and everything is spot on. Yeah. And then I talk with Lo, we were, yeah. I was in Dubai and Lo was also training there, uh, looking you from uh, Singapore. And then I talked to him a little bit about players and then he didn't know actually every player. And then I was thinking, okay, what's wrong actually? <laughs> and then I talk about really good players. And then I said, are you sometimes watching actually um, the match before you play on it? Not really. Then I said, okay. He said, yeah, actually that's in some way also nice. I don't feel pressure because I don't know how good he is. And I was thinking, okay, <laughs> okay. And then I think like, okay, what if he's gonna see a match and yeah. see what I am doing actually the most of the time, then I get like really much problems to kill him in that way or to try to win some points. And I think exactly what you were saying, if Asia is going to do that, then I think we become, yeah, the gap will be really big. And I think only the best of Europe can uh, compete or somebody else. Yeah, I guess then it's, then there'll be something else, right? Then we'll have yeah. to find <laughs> another, yeah, exactly. way, another way yeah, to exactly. do something a little bit better to, to try and catch up or, or, yeah. or pass them. So it's, and it's that way I also really see also when I talk with the Danish people, I think it is extremely impressive what sometimes they are doing. Also uh, back in the days with the doubles players with Bowen Neuler and all those things that you can see sometimes how mentally they kind of try to break the Asian or in that way, I think, and also now with Victor, you can see his food, everything is like where you think, okay, that is an athlete, like literally 24 seven. And I think, yeah, we can uh, only uh, have huge respect for that. Yeah, yeah mm. definitely. We spoke about it when we're on the podcast around where I think badminton will go in the next 10, 15, 20 years. But, you know, we see it with the tennis players, right? Yeah. The, the best players in the world, they're traveling with a chef, they're traveling with their whole team. I can see... At some stage, Babin will go that way. Yeah, it might be a long time mm. when the money's the right number, but yeah. Victor's already doing it to a degree, yeah. right? He's so, yeah, probably yeah. also going to build yeah. his own team. And a lot team. of players yeah. are doing that. Yeah. And I also that, I think that will become more important for everybody to do that. And yeah, to have that knowledge inside your team is, I think, extremely important. And uh, I think maybe in 10 or 15 years, maybe the federations are not... Probably they will, you still come out for the Netherlands and you're a kind of federation, but what, exactly what you're, I think a lot of people is going to build their own team on uh, on them. Yeah, I believe that as well. In terms of the men's singles, 
I know the Stu asked about where do you see the game going. So if you look at, say, Stu's quite old. So in, in Stu's time <laughs> where it was very much more like mentioning was a lot more four corners, yeah. right? Four corners mm. and moving and then, of course, attacking and playing net. But now there's a lot more neutral play yeah, and like transition shots to keep the initiative or give away the initiative. This is more of a question on lady singles. I don't know if you've got an opinion on it, but do you think that that transition is happening in lady singles? Because you see some lady singles playing short serves now. Do you think that's happening a bit more? I think definitely. If I see the lady singles, I, to be honest, the last couple of years, I love to see it. I think the level is extremely high. And also what you see now, I actually talk with Henry also. I see girls are playing the net, wait for the chance, kill it. And I think I cannot, yeah, you probably know that better, but 20 years ago, I think the woman always stepping back and wait for the chance and play the rally around and wait for it. And now you see so many tactic-wise, extremely important, uh, the short serve, you see jump smashes around, I think. And also all the girls are extremely fit. It's not about skills anymore. So I think in that category, I think it is so nice to see because all the girls till Taizu Ying, Intanon, all the girls are so skillful and powerful. And I, yeah, what I said, I see so many things where I think, okay, it becomes so good in some way. I, uh, first I was always single, women single, but also speed wise, I think it yeah. is improving so many more than the last years. I think it is a really nice category to see actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's moved to be, this might sound bad, but it's moved to be a category of its own. Like yeah, people exactly. will now go and watch just to watch those players you you name. Like maybe in the past, they just go and watch badminton and the men's singles, men's doubles men's were exactly. the priority. Yeah, but exactly. now it will be interesting again to see if in the next 5, 10, 15 years, whether the tournaments start to change as well. Maybe there's a female-only tournament and a male-only like tournament yeah. like yeah. tennis again. And that's when they can, they're their own, it's their own discipline, it's their own events. And I think yeah. that's really, you know, we always joke about the women's doubles, but I see that a little bit coming from the women's doubles as well. Yeah, it's yeah. now so skillful. Yeah, and it's and, improving away yeah. and it's also more nice to see. And I think especially, that's why I also talk sometimes with Lena Kierfeld. Uh, and I think in Europe, there's still quite big gap. In a way, there's coming up, yeah, for sure, Carolina Marin, you got Christy Gilmer, Mia Briegveld, Lena Christophers, uh, Lena Kierfeld. All those girls are actually okay. But if you see the top 20 in a world women single, I think that's unbelievable how good they are. And especially what I said, it's so nice to see that they are also really, it's not about who can run at lungs or keep the rally inside. It is really tactical as well. And I think, yeah, I love to see it actually uh, nowadays. The women single is extremely uh, fun to see. And because there's also so many good girls at the moment, I think, yeah. Mm. I want to ask one more question, just one more topic, and then we'll, we'll start wrapping up. It's just regards to what we spoke about on the when we're walking here, big stadiums. And I guess for someone who's just coming into the bigger tournaments, they're not used to playing in the big stadium where the shuttle maybe floats a bit longer, mm. a bit of drift here and there. What have you found helps you for managing drift in a hall or big halls other than just playing more in them? And to be honest, I love to play in big halls when it's really slow because that is <laughs> my game is going to improve a lot because then all my skills can be more, then it's going to be physical, and then it's going oh, yeah. to be who is the run the longest. But especially when you play with the drift and all those things, what I also know in Indonesia and Malaysia, I think it is extremely hard. But I think there is no key point because if you see all those tournaments, everybody's playing almost in three games and yeah. uh, no one can control that good. 
But for me, it is all time extremely hard because you have to be mentally so, so sharp on it that you, if you have to drift in your back, then you cannot play the lift. But it is so, if you have a habit to play all the time from your back end to loot, then you have to be so sharp and also with your coach, keep it net, keep the net, keep the net. But it is so difficult because yeah, you have all the habit strokes also inside you. But yeah, for me to play in most of the times the big halls is a benefit for me because if I play in the Danish league, I play in the still in the Danish but and we go to the small hall. Yeah. I think every Danish guy who would love to play me in a small hall because then I got the difficult problems with it. So they also see, okay, then we got the chance to mark. But if we're going to play the big hall, then it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But so for me, I like it to play in the big halls, but I can understand that for a lot of people, it's going to be way harder for to play in the big arenas. But to be honest, I don't have an advice how to handle things because it is extremely hard to uh, play there. Mm. And yeah, I think what I said, also now in Malaysia, you can see people are losing with four and five because you have no chance to play a side. And to be honest, I sometimes I don't like it actually, that it is such a difference between sideways. Side, yeah. yeah, because I also think, and we also said that in Malaysia, we have to do something about it because it is also, I don't want to say lucky, but if you can choose from uh, the toss, the toss who yeah. is which side, you can base actually say, okay, if there's going to be three games, I'm going to start maybe on the good side and be maybe in the third game, 11-2 be up. And then it's mentally really tough to come back. But yeah, I think Steen also from the BWF always say something like, why are we changing sometimes or at 11 or something? But I think we can always see about that, how, how you can change, because I don't have a solution for that. But it is interesting to see there's so many core difference and side difference. It is, that makes badminton fun, but uh, on the other hand, it just makes it extremely difficult, I think. I think it actually contributes to the gap between the very best and the next mm. level because you see the very best are able have that ability to, from one tournament to the next, they have the ability to change yeah. the level of concentration and the skill they have means they can adapt quicker and then you've got the next group who aren't as experienced and can't do that or and then you have, you know, like the Australian players sometimes where we take brand new players away and they just have no idea. It's, you know, a lift is totally different in a big yeah. stadium compared to a small one. I think it actually contributes to to the gap between the very best and the and the next rung. And sometimes it's it's hard to make that yeah. jump until you have enough time yeah, exactly. to to understand what's happening on Especially the Especially with skillful players, yeah. I think it's a little bit more easy to adapt things. If you have skills and you have so much options to play short, short or uh, everything then it's but for people who have a little bit more problems with those skills it's going to be extremely hard to play around actually because mm. yeah then you got all the problems with your drift all the time yeah yeah sorry i had one more question i was just it's something that we're probably envious of in australia which is the league system and you know i was talking to some of the dutch coaches the other day and they're like oh some of our players playing three leagues or and for someone in australia that is completely foreign there's no leagues whatsoever no, but I also understand that the leagues help with funding. So you obviously get mm. paid quite well, which means then you can play more tournaments. But then if you play too many leagues, then it's a big conflict between mm. how many league matches compared to how many tournaments exactly. and then how much time can you spend on court actually training. So what have you found works best for you? For me, I, I think I moved already quite fast to Denmark and there was a, a huge opportunity opportunity for me also seven years ago that I could join a club where I was still playing TSS. And that was for me also a really good decision because I think 
the level there is extremely high and we're playing on Tuesday, Thursday. So we don't have to play in the weekends there. You can take your rest or your recovery training, what you, what you will do. And we have just, we are flying, yeah, I train in Denmark, but then we are flying from Monday and then you can train the whole week there and you play two uh, league matches. And I think for me, actually to only play that league is, yeah, for me, the perfect because yeah. the matches are really high quality and they pay also way better because there are more people and all those things. But for me, it is fine. And we only have to do that six or seven times in a year to travel one week to Denmark and you play with the best players from Denmark there as well. But I can totally understand that exactly what you were saying. You have to try to find the balance because for me, maybe it's easy to say, but some people cannot join the Danish league or they play in the Dutch league and they have to play another league extra, but they also need the money. So for me, it's, yeah, what I said, maybe a little bit more easy to say like, yeah, just play one league. But I think I truly believe sometimes you have to make the decision for your badminton career as well. And that is not to give training four times a week and uh, to uh, play as much as league match because then we have money. Yeah, you have to invest also in your own career. So if that costs you money, that's how it is. At one point, hopefully, you will get it back also from the badminton. Yeah. But yeah, what I said, it is a little bit more easy nowadays, but I also start from zero or in that way. And for sure, I got a good background and stuff like that. But I truly believe sometimes you have to invest, even if that costs you money. If I go to Dubai, for instance, and it costs me money, but I can train with Victor. Yeah, that's how it is. I have to do, I have to invest. And if I then cannot go out for dinner two times a week or one time a week, then I have to do that because my badminton career is priority number one. And I think that is also with leagues. You have to see if I play four different leagues. Yeah. Yeah, you can say, okay, yeah, that's a lot of money. That's why I can play tournament. But in my eyes, if then if I play that and I cannot perform at the tournament, what is the need then to do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's just something that's so foreign to Australian badminton players mm-hmm. that this the concept of the league is it sounds so great. And yeah. but I, you know, knowing a lot of the European players, it can be a little trap to to focus on the money side. Mm-hmm. And I hundred percent agree. And I think it's even the same for some of our Australian players. You know, you have to make the decision. Do you want to live a nice lifestyle or do you yeah. want to sacrifice what you need to sacrifice so you can pay for yourself to go to a, an yeah. extra tournament or two to get the experience you need to maybe get to that yeah, next exactly. level? Exactly. Especially when I become senior, I think also when I was traveling with Robin and Ruben also to Europe, sometimes we make the stop. For instance, if we fly to Poland and we travel maybe eight hours, that was cheaper. And that's what we did because then we saved maybe three, 300 euros to go to another European tournament. And now you, if you have a little bit more money, now you can think, okay, I want to go even flying business, for instance, because that's better for the body. But at first, everybody has to make sacrifice to not go directly because it's 200 euro expensive. I know it is maybe two hour flights and now it's eight hour flights, but you have to make decisions in your life to say, okay, I have to do that for badminton. And I think, yeah. In some way, I can do it a way more and a way better still days, still nowadays. But yeah, I think that is also extremely hard. But as a youth player, you have to teach them and also the federation have to teach them, okay, if you want to do it, you have to invest by yourself also. And also go in the weekend, say you can go out or you can go nice fancy dinners. But if you save this money for even maybe for other things, but yeah, use that for the badminton. And I think, yeah. It is what I said. I can also understand people who are 18 think like, yeah, Mark, 
fuck off. <laughs> a little bit like, what are you saying? But this, like, I can understand that it is difficult, but I think you have to do it yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Awesome. It's probably a whole nother podcast yeah. topic. So we can uh, pick that up another time. Yeah. <laughs> But Mark, just, just as a final one now, what's next for you? What's next on your calendar and, and your type on your outlook in terms of your goals and what you'd like to do? Yeah, the Worlds is always a big tournament for us. So we are our preparation starts actually this week for me. And then we I'm also going to go to the Popoffs Brothers for one okay. week also to train there. And then after that, we're going to Japan in the, the middle of August. And then actually on the long term, it's for sure qualified to for Paris. In the Netherlands, I don't know if you guys, but we have different, to qualify, yeah. we have different standards. So I have to be in the top 20 in the world. So that is way harder than a general yeah. or a guy from Europe. But it's, I think it's also more proud if I'm standing there. So that's a really big goal, but especially with the other Olympics in my pocket, I want to, I don't want to be there a tourist in that way. I really want to perform there and I really want to challenge the big guns in that yeah. way. So that is actually a big goal, but yeah, that's also what we already talk in the podcast. I don't want to forget the progress in my and the Olympics is a big goal, but I don't want to only sing like only Olympics, Olympics. I also want to develop myself in all the aspects what I already talked in the podcast. And I think that is the most important to yeah, reach my goals instead of only being so focused on the result or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Well, if any of the listeners want to follow along with your progress, how can they keep up to date with what you're doing? I think I'm especially, my Instagram is maybe the best. I'm not that active, but I'm still okay, I think. <laughs> okay, great. So for everyone listening, we will put Mark's Instagram handle on the podcast description, so you make sure you follow him. And just from everyone listening and myself, Stuart, as my co-host, thanks, Mark, so much for coming on to this episode. Thanks, everyone. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast, and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.